Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Meryl Johnston. The Lifestyle Accountant Show exists to help today's accounting firm owners build successful firms while also living a healthy, happy life without sacrificing sleep, your weekends, or time with loved ones. Today's guest is Rob Pillins. He spent 10 years as an accountant in practice at PwC and then moved into operational roles in accounting firms, including a role as the general manager at mid-tier firm Pitcher Partners in Sydney. For the last seven years, Rob has been running Planet Consulting, which helps owners and managers run better accounting firms. Today, we're focusing on leadership and management skills and specifically the challenges that a new manager can face. We'll run through a series of case studies and discuss how to approach these different situations. So underperformance is is probably the conversation that people actually at any level seem to get a bit stressed about. I'd probably firstly say to the person, look, how do you feel about this? And they'll say, look, I feel really quite uncomfortable. And I would say, look, that's actually quite normal to, to feel that way. But let's, let's walk through some ways that you could approach this that w- will help you. So the first thing I often say to people is, well, why will you be giving the person some feedback about their underperformance? And the answer typically will be, well, because I want them to improve, yeah? And I go, yeah, absolutely. So this is actually a very positive conversation, right? This is a very supportive conversation around you want that person to, to improve and grow. And so feedback is absolutely a fundamental part of that. Today, we're covering a range of topics related to management and leadership, including why accountants often do a bad job of project management and how to improve it, what to do if you have an underperforming team member, dealing with constant interruptions as a manager, creating an equitable workload amongst your team while also balancing the needs of different individuals, how to effectively manage up, particularly if you have a disorganized boss. And lastly, we talk about negotiating salaries with team members. All that and more coming right up on the Lifestyle Accountant Show. And now a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by TeamUp, helping you to recruit rockstar Filipino accounting staff without the ongoing BPO fees. We've had Filipino accountants on the Beanages team for about four or five years, but my experience with BPOs has been average at best. When COVID hit and our BPO team moved to remote work, we started to question the value of paying an ongoing monthly fee for every team member, particularly as we had a couple of years of experience now working with an offshore team and no longer needed all of the support that a BPO can provide. TeamUp provides fixed price recruitment with no ongoing fees. It costs around $3,000 for them to run the end-to-end hiring process. That starts with creating an attractive job ad, promoting it on multiple platforms, attracting hundreds of candidates which they vet and interview and test, and ultimately they present the top three candidates for you to interview. We've just hired our first accountant in the Philippines with TeamUp. The process took about five weeks from beginning to end and saved our manager in the Philippines hours and hours of time. It's a busy time of year for us and constantly hiring was taking her away from other valuable work like reviewing client files and also managing our team in the Philippines. TeamUp also offers an employer of record service through their partners and that takes care of the compliance side of things. So next time you're looking to hire a rockstar accountant in the Philippines, check out hireteamup.com. That's H-I-R-E, teamup, T-E-A-M-U-P.com. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you very much, Meryl. I think we met for the first time when we were on 
CA or Chartered Accountant ANZ Council together. That's my first memory of meeting you. I think you might be right. And you stood out to me because you were uh, willing to ask some hard questions and uh, <laughs> start some hard conversations, which I think is important. That's, to me, be, being on a representative council like that, that's what it's about is, is yeah. asking the questions and trying to push the boundaries a bit. Yes. And, and I suppose you could argue that, uh, you know, I'm almost a professional uh, question asker uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rob, let's start with a little bit of your background. I know today we're on the podcast to talk about management and leadership for new accountants, and I know that you run a business which one aspect is training accountants on that. But let's go go back a little bit and maybe you could talk about some of your history in the accounting industry. Yeah. So, look, I started, as many people did uh, back then, uh, as a young auditor uh, at Pricewaterhouse. And long story short, uh, I did that for quite a while, including a stint in the UK, which was absolutely fabulous. Uh, and then I finished my 10 years of client work at PW as a business services manager. So I got to experience both audit and business services. And uh, so 10 years of client-facing work, uh, and I loved it. Uh, but out of the blue, an opportunity came along to become the finance and admin manager for Pricewaterhouse in Sydney, literally uh, completely unexpected. And so that kind of started me on the journey I suppose I've been on ever since, which is really, you know, helping to run better accounting firms, whether it's inside the firm uh, or outside of the, the, the firm. So, so uh, you know, after that, uh, <laughs> I, had a very, I had a short stint at the Olympic Games. That's maybe a story for another day, uh, 18 months working uh, with the organising committee, which was amazing. But uh, really I, I spent quite a long time then in four other firms in um, leadership roles, uh, Grant Thornton, where I was uh, helping the managing partner in Sydney there drive some change. Uh, and then uh, general manager, pitch partners in Sydney for five and a half years, which is a role that I became a little bit famous for. And uh, that was great. And then I was the CEO uh, of two smaller accounting firms, sort of 20 to 30 person firms. And in amongst that, I actually did a master of business coaching degree, which was a two year uh, postgraduate uh, degree, which was uh, quite, quite fascinating and, and very useful. Uh, but of course, today I, I now run my own business, Planet Consulting, and I've uh, been doing that now in this form for about uh, seven years. And it is for me all about helping owners and managers run better accounting firms. And um, without taking too much time for, for your listeners, there, there are four basic ways that I do that. Um, the, the first is uh, uh, I do detailed reviews of firms. So I've done 27 of these, smallest is a five-person firm, biggest is a 150-person firm. And I basically pull that accounting firm apart literally pretty much every aspect. I split it up into about 24 different areas. And I look at uh, what's working well, uh, what what could be done differently, and I, I feedback that uh, to, to the owners of the firm. And that involves some very uh, uh, private conversations with team members who often tell me stuff that uh, comes as a bit of a surprise to the owners of the firms. It's quite fascinating. It's quite, it's quite hard work. Uh, and I'm drawing on a lot of my experience to join the dots and, and make sense sometimes of some cryptic things, but it's uh, uh, it's very uh, rewarding um, uh, both for me and in the type of work and, and the clients with the results. Second way I love to help people is I do some one-on-one, -on -one, you know, bespoke coaching, consulting with firms. That will vary. Sometimes I'm facilitating strategic planning days or planning days. Third way is I am the facilitator of what's known as the uh, accountants peer groups, uh, something that was started some years ago by a lady called Thea Foster. 
and uh, I took those over, uh, oh gosh, must be about four or five years ago. And those are uh, advisory board type things for, for accountants. Uh, they're amazing uh, groups. Uh, some of them are just for firm owners talking about anything to do with running a firm. Uh, and those groups provide an enormous amount of knowledge for me, of course, about what's going on uh, across the across the profession beyond some of those individual clients that I might be working with. And then finally, Meryl, which is really relevant today, I guess, uh, I, I do get involved in non-technical training. And I do love that because it's helping, you know, young accountants coming through, or sometimes they're not so young, uh, but they may, may be less experienced, uh, you know, uh, to develop themselves and be the best, you know, best version of themselves that they can be. I get a bit passionate about this and because uh, I, I kind of wake up in the morning thinking about how to run a better accounting firm and I go to sleep at night thinking about the same thing. All right, Rob. Well, before we get into some of the leadership and management questions, I know you've got a lot of experience on the operation side of running accounting firms, had the experience as an accountant in practice, but also many different roles running accounting firms. So I've got a couple of questions for you there, and then we'll dive into the leadership topics. If you look at a typical small business that's not an accounting firm, the shareholders are separate from the management team. So they're not actually really involved in making decisions. They could, they might be able to appoint the board or the CEO, but they're not making day-to-day decisions. Whereas I feel like it's different. In an accounting firm, the owners are getting their hands a lot more dirty on some of the minutiae of this marketing decision or, or that process. And, and what do you think is the best way to structure it or how much input should the accounting, the owners, the partners, whatever you want to call them, how much input should they have? To some degree, it depends a little bit on size because early on, a smaller firm probably really can't afford perhaps a, a you know, a full-time resource with, with a reasonable level of skill to kind of handle some of this stuff. But I think certainly once you get to a certain size, then, you know, hopefully you've got some sort of a business manager type person Call them what you will. There's lots of titles floating around. Um, but uh, but the, the thing is that I think by nature, a lot of accountants are a little bit detail-oriented and, and, and do like a bit of control, right? And so what you need is you need people in those roles that have credibility and can build trust with the owners who are then actually okay with letting go, right? And so pitch partners, uh, you know, a good example, I don't, you know, talk too much about that one, but, but you know, because of my background and, and, and so on and some of the things that I did, the partners could go, oh, actually, you know, Rob, Rob knows what he's doing, right? So we should kind of like step back and just let him and the team get on with it, right? And for the most part, that, you know, that, that happened pretty well. One of the roles that I was the CEO of, though, Meryl, was an interesting example of what you talk about. Four-partner firm, they had decided that they would like a CEO. Um, and uh, I took the role on, but what I realised was that they liked the idea of a CEO, but perhaps there were one or two people in particular who kind of went, oh, okay, now I know I really only want a CEO if the CEO does what I want or what I <laughs> tell them. But you have this weird dynamic, right, where technically, individually, each of those four partners is reporting to me as the CEO. But I report to the board. And who's the board? It's those four partners acting together, right? So it, it's it's actually set up to almost fight. Like it's a dysfunctional kind of structure, isn't it, really? And it takes pretty special people to make that work. 
Um, and uh, so, so you're right. The, the 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 fact that accountants tend to you know have their sleeves rolled up a bit and and, and making some of these decisions. Sometimes, of course, I had to say, guys, look, you know, don't worry. I, I'll take care of that. Just you know, step away. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I've always found that in my business, we've been in just hard running projects or having client facing team members deliver on projects because always the client work takes priority and then it, it keeps on coming. And so the, the projects don't happen. Yeah. So I, I describe it as that sort of catch 22 where, you know, you're, too, you're so busy chopping down the trees with an axe that you haven't got time to sharpen the axe or maybe even better, go and buy a chainsaw. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Something we found helpful there was hiring an external project manager to drive the projects and to keep things moving along, but also having to reduce the workload of of someone. If if they're going to be running a separate project or implementing a new technology, then they're not going to have the same amount of output. Yeah, and you know what? Project project management is, I think, is a really it's a it's a modern day skill that we all should have. And I'm fortunate that I studied uh, some project management uh, uh, postgraduate at university, and and um, so I've got a I've actually got some training that I give people around project management, and it's quite eye opening for some people around. Ah, oh, yeah, okay, you know, wow, there's a whole different way of looking at some of these things, and and so on. So I think you're right. I think project manager is immensely important skill for us to have. I've, I have no formal training in it, but I have an interest in it. So I've done a lot of self-education about that. And I, something when I'm encouraging team members to work on projects, I get pushback around estimating time. And I think it's really uh, important yes. to try and have an estimate of how long you, you want to spend on this or how long you're going to allow yourself to spend on something. Because if you think, if you say two hours or two days, it's, it's quite different and getting better at estimating how long things are going to take in advance. That's a skill that I really try and encourage uh, everyone to get better at. As as humans, we suffer from something that I call optimism bias, where uh, we tend to remember the shortest amount of time it's ever taken us to do something, but often that's not a realistic estimate for the circumstances that we're facing. Now a word from our sponsor, Tax Valet. Are you worn out by the complexities of sales tax? or maybe just tired of constantly picking up the pieces when software messes up. It's time to embrace a better way with Tax Valet. Tax Valet's sales tax compliance suite handles everything for you from data prep and filings to managing audits, all for one simple, easy to understand monthly fee. Tax Valet is looking to form meaningful relationships with accountants who truly care about their client's experience and want to partner for the long haul. We've been recommending our B-Ninjas clients chat to Tax Valet about their sales tax requirements for years. If you're interested, check out taxvalet.com, that's T-A-X-V-A-L-E-T.com, and check out their partner program. Remember, with Tax Valet, it's not just about making sales tax easier, it's about making your life easier. All right, well, let's jump into some of the these questions. So these are for new managers and shared some questions that come up for you. I've gone out to the audience and to my contacts to ask if they've got questions and I've come up with some questions that that came up for me in my career. So I'm just going to hit you with it. I've got some opinions on some, so I'll just my thoughts, but a lot of them I'll just let you share your opinion. So the first one is I've been promoted to manager 
so it's my first management position. Can yes. I still congratulations? Be <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Can I still be friends with the people I will now be managing? Yeah, and and uh, th- this is I think pretty much everyone probably goes through this, right? You know, it's because the reality is, in my experience, I suspect it's probably yours too. Um, we do make good friends inside our accounting firms. We're kind of like-minded, you know, people and, and uh, we, we like each other's company. And so we, we become friends. Um, indeed, you know, a couple of my closest friends, you know, remain people from, from those very early days uh, in my accounting career. But I think that there's a couple of things to kind of, I guess, kind of just remind yourself of. And that is firstly that by their nature, uh, accounting firms are kind of hierarchical, right? Like I know not all firms, some firms will try and get away from that a little bit, but the majority of firms that people probably that are in that are listening to, uh, there is a level of kind of hierarchy and it's understood and it's accepted. It's like, it's actually part of how the accounting firm works, right? You know, work gets pushed down the hierarchy to be done at the lowest cost, you know, level that it makes sense to do kind of thing. So, so the first thing I would say to someone who's just been promoted is to acknowledge that, you know, you're moving into a role that I'd like to think everyone kind of understands and, and it's part of that hierarchy. Um, and you can be very proud of, you know, making that. I remember being super excited when I became a manager at, you know, Price Waterhouse. It was a big deal. Um, but secondly, then, I think, um, you know, this idea of, you know, trying to focus on being respected, you know, so being respected for the actions that you take as a, as a, as a manager um, and, and you know, um, people often worry that um, holding people accountable will mean, you know, people won't like them or that delegating work to them, people won't like them and then the friendship breaks down. My experience has probably been a little bit different. In fact, one of my closest friends is someone who used to be my boss day to day, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, when I was younger. And so, you know, if you have the right approach to delegating and to holding people accountable, and there's not necessarily one single right way to do that, but, but you know, a sensible way to do that, then I think the majority of the people that you're working with will go, you know what, I, of course, that's, that's how it is. I respect that they are fulfilling their role just as I'm fulfilling mine. I know, does that make sense? It, it does. So is it still okay to go for lunch? Yeah, absolutely. Coffees? Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you know, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, someone who I count as a friend of mine to this day was was actually uh, an HR manager that reported to me, right? And and what was lovely about our relationship was, you know, we became quite good friends really in the workplace. But um, you know, she understood that I was still the boss, right? At the end of the day, some decisions I might have to make that she might not be 100% agreement with. But equally, she was quite happy. One day I remember she said, oh, Rob, don't be such a goose, right? Like um, think that through. That's not, you know. So you had that ability to actually have frank conversations with each other. Um, and I think for many people, the, a friendship can be absolutely maintained. I, I, I disagree with people who say you can't be friends you know, with your team. I actually think it is possible and I think it's a very healthy thing. Um, obviously, there's kind of friendship and there's friendship, right? Um, and, uh, uh, of course, there are many instances of people in accounting firms getting together with each other in more intimate relationships and, and uh, <laughs> you know, 
I have some dear friends who, who who work together and have been married for the last, you know, 25 years. Uh, there was so, a bit of that in my uh, video audit days. There's still yeah. there's multiple marriages that came out of that division. So, again, like-minded people. You spend a lot of time with them. So, I, you know, I absolutely don't, you know, look, the more intimate relationships, I think they prove they're a bit more challenging, obviously. That, that really, I don't think that's appropriate for a, you know, manager, team member type relationship. But, but you know, normal friendship, I think, is a good, healthy thing. And, and um, you know, it, it, might, it might be slightly moderated a little bit during that time, but often it then blossoms and goes deeper, perhaps when one of those people moves into, you know, a different firm or a different role quite often. Month as manager, I've been asked to guide a young team member who is underperforming. Uh, How should I approach yeah. it? Yes, yes. So underperformance is is probably one of the it's probably the conversation that that people actually at any level seem to get a bit stressed about. So I'd probably firstly say to the person, look, you probably, you know, how do you feel about this? And they'll say, look, I feel really quite uncomfortable. And I would say, look, that's actually, um, you know, quite quite normal uh, to to feel that way. But let's let's walk through some ways that you could approach this that you know uh, will, will help you. So the first thing I often say to people is, well, you know, wh why are you, why, why will you be giving the person some feedback about their underperformance? And the answer typically will be, well, because I want them to improve. Yeah. Um, and I go, yeah, absolutely. So this is actually a very positive conversation, right? This is a very supportive conversation around you want that person to, to improve and grow. Uh, and so, you know, feedback is absolutely a fundamental part of that. So, you know, we've got to frame it up as, as, a, as a positive thing because people often, you know, frame this, oh, I've got to criticise them. Well, well no, you, you're going to give them some constructive feedback, right? Uh, and, and this different framing puts us in a different mindset and, and, and goes a long way, I think, to, to having a, a good conversation. And uh, actually in the manager program, uh, Mera, we actually do some role plays of giving uh, giving feedback. I've written some case studies, which are very real, and uh, we actually role play. And so depending on, on you know, uh, the situation, I might even, you know, you could work with that young manager perhaps and, and have them role play uh, how it would go. But it would probably go something like, you know, getting together in a, in a private space, uh, setting the scene a little bit and then saying something like, hey, Meryl, uh, I just wanted to catch up with you and uh, give you a little bit about a feedback about a couple of things I've been observing um, uh, and, and would, would that be okay? Now, the, the person is inevitably going to say yes, uh, but you've got their permission, right, to, to give the feedback. Now, if they say no, you've probably got a bigger a bigger concern, right, because why would someone not want to get the you know, feedback? And then you would be, you know, explaining what you're observing, providing some, you know, specific examples. It's not much point if I say, hey, Meryl, you're always late, right? That's not particularly useful. But if I say, Meryl, did you notice that um, during this last week, uh, you know, we had a couple of meetings scheduled for 9am and you rocked in at 9.30 and seemed completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, the meeting had already started, right? That's, that's much more powerful, right, than saying you're always late. Um, and so, you know, identifying and giving specific examples and then I would say to you as the manager, um, you know, ask the person, uh, you know, do they remember that, uh, you know, trying to get an affirmation from them that there is an issue around this, Oh, you know, would you agree that that's probably not an ideal thing for, for us? And then start to work with them 
on, well, could we explore, you know, some things that you might be able to do differently around this to, to address this? Would, would that be okay? Yep, that'd be great. Thanks, Rob, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, uh, it's a coaching type thing where you're trying to guide the person then to really come to their own answer. And you and I know, Meryl, that's so important because if it's their answer, um, they've bought into it, they own it. Whereas if you said to them, look, do this, this and this, they're kind of less inclined to do it than if they've come up with it, yeah? So so feedback, it, it doesn't actually have to be a particularly long thing. Uh, it might depend on the nature of the issue. Obviously, some of the more serious uh, stuff, uh, you know, might, there might be might be reasonably lengthy conversation. But that idea of, of you know, uh, really identifying the issue, giving specific examples, you know, uh, inviting them to come up with some ideas for themselves and then ultimately reaching agreement on what, you know, what the plan is going forward. And then what would you do if they keep on having these issues? So say it was the quality of their work and they're getting, um, we used to call them review points, which was just a yeah, list of all of the things that needed to be fixed and they're just not improving and you don't know, is it because they're not trying? Is it their attitude? Is it that they're struggling with some of these concepts? So you've had that chat, um, but you've seen a bit of improvement, but then it's kind of gone back to how it was. Uh, Then what would you do? Yeah. And again, I don't think that's at all an unusual situation. I think it's actually quite common. I think there'd be a couple of things. I mean, I think I would probably initially go back to to the person and again, have a bit of a repeat conversation. And, you know, sometimes I, I'm, I kind of go, look, I'm, I am scratching my head a bit. I, I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm struggling a little bit to kind of come up with, you know, perhaps what's going on and how we can help you. So, you know, is there something perhaps that you haven't yet told us about that might be impacting on this? And sometimes, Merrill, of course, that's when maybe a personal thing will come through. Um, maybe they didn't they feel comfortable to say something about that. You know, maybe there's some terrible health issue going on for themselves or a family member and it's really weighing them down. Um, so, so, you know, this idea of trying to find the root cause um, can sometimes be hard. But the other thing I would say in this situation is sometimes if a person is maybe working directly with maybe only one or two people, actually getting them to work with someone else and experience maybe a, a different way the work has been delegated and supervised and just see whether that makes a difference. Because I have seen time and time again, people say, oh, you know, that person's no good. And then they'll move into a different team, say, and all of a sudden they hit their straps and they're doing great. So it's funny you say that. And I've been reading about this recently about how the incentives in accounting firms aren't typically to encourage senior staff, so seniors, managers, to spend time on training and building up their team. It's more about output and tangible results, not the intangible benefits of, tr- of training people, which might also be rotating in, in other teams. Yeah, yeah, incentives Incentives is a whole thing for another day perhaps, but there are so many instances where people have plans that have unintended consequences and the unintended consequences are generally not good. And I noticed that. It was a long time ago when I was back in my BDO days, but I noticed there were definitely some managers that were great at training and, and put a lot of time into that. But but if that... I mean, they had KPIs and they the KPIs weren't related to that. And so that was they were just doing that because they cared about it. And there were other managers that were pretty hard and they tr- tried to pick all the best team members that had already been trained and weren't putting that time in themselves. But 
potentially were promoting, getting promoted to partner faster because of their results. So, I mean, if, as an accounting firm owner, how would you try and structure things to encourage your managers to put in that time to train their team well? Yeah. So, so I mean, this this in a way comes back to, um, you know, values and 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 what what's important inside the firm, doesn't it? And and I think. You know, if it's very clear in a manager's position description that these are expectations around developing other people, uh, and your own performance is going to be assessed uh, on that, then I think that can go go a long way. But of course, you've got to stick to it because what I've noticed is, you know, sometimes firms will fall into that trap where they go, "Oh, yeah, look, I know that manager kind of leaves a bit of a trail of destruction behind them sometimes, but they get the work done, right?" But, you know, there's, there's you know, some casualties along the way and, and sometimes we seem to justify those casualties, uh, which I personally have a real difficulty with. And I think most accounting firm owners at their heart would actually go, you know what, that's, that's not really how we want to run our firm, is it? So, you know, that alignment around the values and what are we really trying to do here uh, and holding our managers accountable for, for actually lining up on that. So I've got a question that ties into the flip side of that. And so... Again, th- th- this was my personal experience when I was a young accountant, but I remember one manager, who actually was an associate director, I think, but um, used to, had a big team, multiple jobs on the go, did care about training people and put a lot of time into his team and could only get work done when he came into the office at 6am. So he basically got nothing, no actual work done between nine and five because he there was a constant stream of people and meetings for the entire day. And so he'd have to get in at 6am to do his actual work. And then after 5pm, that's when he started again on, on his work. And so, I mean, now in the days of remote work, I mean, that might be helpful when you're not in the office to get some things done. But but how would, what would you recommend to to someone like that? Yeah. So, so first thing I would say is, is, you know, you talked about doing the actual work and I, I get, I get where you're going with that, but I'd also pause and say, let's not forget that the, one of the critical pieces of work that a manager must be doing is to look at the team and develop the people. And it's about what the team delivers, not just what the manager delivers. So, you know, it may well be that a large chunk of a manager's day is actually quite reasonably and very valuably spent doing some of those things. And so maybe they're not actually interruptions, they're actually a core part of, of the job. So that'd be my first observation. Having said that, um, you know, I, I've experienced this myself, so I, I totally get it, right? When I was a business services manager, even when I was the general manager at Pitch Partners, I'd sometimes just have a queue outside my door. It was like we'd have to have a numbering number system, you know, <laughs> take a number and wait to see Rob. Um, I th- look, I think there's a couple of things that, uh, you know, we, we, we should look at there. And, and as I do quite often with with these sorts of things, I say to people, okay, well, what's really the root cause of all of those interruptions, right? Um, and this is something I talk quite a lot about with people. So what is it that's really causing that? Now, one of the things that I know from my experience and in talking, you know, with lots and lots of firms and working with them is that sometimes one of the root causes of that might actually just be that we haven't quite nailed the training for, for those people in terms of the sort of the work that we're expecting them to do. There's a bit of a gap there and maybe just a little bit more, you know, almost formal type training or, or, or you know, could could fill that gap. The, the other thing is that I often see, and this does, definitely does not need to be the case, is uh, people are, are quite poor at delegation. And by that, I mean, they're not 
you know, they're not giving clarity around what's expected, you know, when, when it's expected by, what are the tools you get to use, are there other people involved, you know, what, are, what you know, when's it got to be done by? And in the manager program, we, we role play delegation. So we actually get people, I've got a template that I use, 10-step briefing for, for delegation. And it's interesting because people go through that and they go, yeah, that works, doesn't it? I can see I often leave stuff out and that's why someone might need to come back to me because I haven't been clear. This is kind of like the, the pre-job briefing, if you like, isn't it? It's the, and, and, and I think there's, so, so I think the, those, um, those two things is trying to find the, you know, the root cause and it could be a training issue, it could be a delegation issue, or maybe it's something, something else that we haven't yet, uh, you know, identified. But those two for me, uh, you know, often often come up. And the other thing is, you know, managers can start to um, manage the expectations of their team a little bit more by saying, you know what, guys, look, I actually need to do my most important thing first up in the morning. So, um, you know, between 8.30 and, and 10 or, you know, whatever the hours might be that make sense in the first, you know, but first up in the morning, what I want you to do is I want you to, to just actually give me a bit of space because I need a bit of thinking time for some of the high level, you know, I've, I've got to do some of that more complex stuff that, that uh, uh, you know, is, is matched from my experience. So if you could not, you know, interrupt me during that time, that, that would be great. Now, of course, today, Meryl, we don't tend to be working in offices with doors on them. We tend to be working in open plan size of spaces. And so we often used to signal, please don't interrupt by closing our door. I was very reluctant to do that. And what I discovered was people didn't really take any notice. They'd say, oh, I know you've got your door closed, but, but you know. Um, but, but sometimes people might even have a way of signalling um, that they're, they're busy. Uh, might be putting a hat on or whatever it might be, put a sign on, you know. So I think the manager can, can maybe try and shape some expectations around the team and, and, you know, actually quarantine a little bit of time for themselves. Yeah. So this next question is related to workload as well, but it's balancing the workload of different team members. And I can remember a scenario again as a young accountant working in audit and so we we're on, on a job, probably going to have to stay there till 7 or 8 p.m. most nights, plan to have dinner in the office. And there was one guy on the team who played VFL. So not AFL, not a professional footballer, but he he could leave at 3 p.m. two days a week to go to training. And that meant that the rest of us was, was just expected that we, we were going to stay late. So any work he didn't get done could just get allocated to, to us because he was a VFL player, which is really important. Um but a lot of us also were athletes and played other sports, but that that wasn't. And I can, I mean, this was almost twenty years ago for me, and you can still tell probably from my voice that I wasn't that impressed. <laughs> I think allocated someone else's work. It's left, left care, an impression. Yeah, but I didn't care about staying late. I was there with the team, but that still just didn't feel fair to me. Yeah, and I and even when I think about it now, I think ah, oh, that this is was really annoying that one person got special treatment and less work. Um, that, that might not be the best example, but that w I felt like that was an example of what I considered unbalanced or unfair workload among a, a team. How, how do you recommend a manager balances workload, but also with people's different commitments and objectives? So th this, uh, this can absolutely be a really tough one because if you think about it, um, one of the ways that this plays out it today is often um, people with parenting responsibilities, of course. Now, as someone who elected not to have children, um, I have the greatest respect for parents because I think it's, it's 
you know, a really hard thing to be and, but, you know, all, all comes with all these amazing benefits. But what you can see, of course, sometimes, you know, people have parenting responsibilities, of course, will negotiate something similar perhaps to your VFL player. And I think there is a whole range of reasons. So, so I think this, this, I think this is one of the harder issues to deal with. But fundamentally, I think to start with, we've got to have conversations, you know, one-on-one with people about, you know, what's important to them and, and kind of trying to understand, um, you know, I suppose what, what on what basis are we actually employing them really? <laughs> you know, and if you're a VFL player, uh, that's part of the deal. Well, that's part of the deal, right? Like that that's that's kind of in his contract and and that that is how it is. Doesn't make it any easier for you picking up some of the stuff which you would kind of say, well, he would normally be doing that if if he wasn't. And I guess that raises a question around, well, knowing that maybe someone can't work full time or can't be there and put quite quite the same yards in, you know, should that firm have resourced that job a little differently, you know, and maybe had that extra person, um, you know. Now, of course, resourcing is a big issue, you know, often, and so we do find people that are doing more. But having conversations with each of your team members about how you're going to work with them and what's important to them I think is a really good start. And, and I know it can be hard because, you know, people will have different things going on in their lives and could be employed on very different bases. And sometimes that might be a very private thing as well. You know, someone might have some quite serious illness that maybe isn't obviously manifesting itself. So, and, and it's not appropriate to talk about, but it might mean that, you know, they have extra time off and they have to, you know, you know, go and have a blood transfusion every week or, you know, all sorts of weird stuff that might not be immediately obvious. And, and I think it is very easy as a as a person, you know, in, you know, particularly younger people in the firms to look across at other people and go, well, that's not fair. And sometimes we have to be sort of saying to them, look, you know, we are all different. Life's pretty complicated in 2023, lots of different circumstances. Try not to look at what other people are doing. I'm As, as a manager, I'm working really hard on making this fair for everybody and I want to get the best from everybody, but kind of try and to some degree stay in your lane with this and, and I'll support you to be the best person you can be. I think that's really good advice. And now that I'm older, I can respect that. So as a, as a 22-year-old, I was just thinking this is not fair but now as as a as a uh, parent but also as a leader that's what I would be trying to encourage with my team that we're trying to everybody's unique and individual and has different agreements with us as as the firm and so we're trying to provide a workplace that caters to everybody and so there's some people that work part-time they've got children that well, I mean, now we don't even, it's quite different. At Beatages, we don't have certain work hours. So it's very flexible. So something like that. We're, we're based, we're looking at outputs, not inputs in terms of, uh, you know, holding people accountable. And now a word from our sponsor, LiveFlow. I first heard of LiveFlow through a friend of mine, Nicole McKenzie, who is on episode seven of this podcast. She said something like, if you're copying and pasting QuickBooks online data, into Google Sheets or Excel, you must check out LiveFlow. Here are some of the ways you can use it. Automating the month-end close process, eliminating manual consolidation, set it up in 10 minutes and you're good to go, or utilize one of LiveFlow's over 100 financial models. They're completely plug and play. After you bring in the live QBO data, you can use that data to input into their financial models and templates that are already pre-built. Need to make an update in QBO? No problem, simply click refresh and all the updated data will refresh in sheets. 
no more copying and pasting. Yeah. And it's an interesting one about fairness because I think it's important that things feel fair, uh, but how do you make the team feel like things are fair when when they're different? And and that can be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yes. And, and um, you know, there, there has been this idea that, well, we should treat everybody the same. Um, and while that kind of at a high level appeals, I don't think it's realistic and I don't actually think think it's smart either. But, but of course, if you are blatantly, you know, doing some dumb stuff in terms of, you know, letting people run amok and not do much work or not pull their weight, well, that's a very different conversation. So this next one is related to rather than managing a team, it's managing up. So this scenario, it's a, it's a new manager, but the manager's moved into a different team with a different director. And the director is unorganized. Everything seems urgent. So what would you recommend to the manager in terms of how to manage that relationship with the director? Yeah. So this is this idea of managing up. And, and when you become a manager, it's actually a really important part of your role. Um, and it's kind of part of what makes it fun in a way because you're kind of managing up, down and around now as a manager. You are kind of the linchpin really in, in, make, in my experience in really making the organisation hum. And it's actually part of what I think makes the role quite exciting and, and challenging. But I, th- I think in the end, um, you know, the, the managers actually got, got, to, got to take the brave pill and, and book some time with the partner and sit with them and say, look, um, obviously I'm, I'm new in, in, in terms of working with you, um, but would it be okay if I shared, you know, my experience so far of working with you? Um, be, be, because I think that would be helpful for us both. Now, again, you would like to think that a director or partner, of course, will say, yeah, great, that's a good idea. Because as a general observation, I don't think we talk enough about how we work together with people. Uh, We tend to just get in and do it rather than saying, well, how do you like to be communicated with and, you know, what's important to you and and so on. There's a stage in my career where I had some PAs uh, and, and if I got a new PA, you know, we would always talk about, well, how are we going to work together? What's the rhythm, you know, for us working together? Because some, you know, some PAs like working different ways and sometimes they had good ideas, which I went, actually, that's a good idea. I, I'd not thought of that before. So we're, we're with the director and we're saying, look, can I give you some feedback around, you know, us working together? And then, then I think you really just have to say, look, it feels to me um, like, you know, everything is urgent, right? And let, so let me give you a few examples. Again, you've got to go back to the specific examples, you know, this, this and this. And for anyone on the call who's who's familiar with the uh, Eisenhower Importance Urgency Matrix, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with that one, Meryl, it uh, was made famous by Stephen Covey, but we talk about uh, quadrant one is where everything is urgent and everything is important. Whereas what we want to do is we want to be in quadrant two where uh, it's important but it's not urgent because we're doing it in accordance with a, a plan and a schedule. And so this this director is living their life in quadrant one and I do see that on a pretty regular basis but it's a very uncomfortable place to be and we don't do our best work there because mistakes get made, we're too rushed, yeah? So, so it's kind of giving those specific examples to the director and saying, look, you know, th- this is what I'm seeing um, can we talk about how, how, how we might be able to change this? And, and because you're kind of going up the chain, you know, sometimes, you know, ideally you'd still say, look, have you got any ideas? But they will almost inevitably push back to you as well. So you probably want to come with some, some ideas. And some, some of those ideas might be, well, you know, 
we haven't really been doing any like quarterly or monthly or weekly or daily planning type stuff. Can we get into some sort of a rhythm where we, we're, we're looking ahead? And this is a big thing that I w- often work with people on. I actually like to start it annually and then go annual, quarter, monthly, you know, weekly, daily. And it gets more granular as you, as you go down. But, but uh, you know, could we at least, you know, maybe on a monthly basis, you and I, you know, look at what's coming up in the, in the upcoming month and start to map this out, you know, and see if we can't, you know, plan a bit more in advance. Now, I'd like to think most directors would go, you know what, that's a really good idea. Can you help, you know, can you help me with that? And if they've got a PA, then, you know, they should be a part of that conversation, obviously. Um, and the PA, if they've got one, has probably been pulling their hair out as well. So that I guess that would be the sort of thing. Again, you've just got to have the conversation. Work on where, what's what's causing this and how, how could we work together to, to, to solve it? So in the early days of being in this, I think I could be a bit hard to work with because I just had so many ideas. So let's try this, let's do that, let's do this. And I had a great operations manager, Fiona. And so she always handled me uh, very diplomatically, but she would say, well, if you want to add this new project on, I can remove this one or this yes, one. Uh, so what? Yeah. <laughs> and that would make me stop and think, oh, do do I actually want to stop one of those other project pro, one of those other projects that's already in progress, or am I am I okay waiting and maybe this wasn't as urgent as I originally said? So she'd very diplomatically um, handled me, and then also got we implemented traction. Or EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System from the book Traction in the early days of being that got us into more of a rhythm with the annual quarterly planning too. So that was that was helpful. I, I do I do think as a as a, a dangerous generalization, I do think accountants undervalue the idea of structure. Um, you know, we're all smart people, we know what we're doing, you know, please don't you know, don't fence me in with some structure. But I genuinely believe, based on my experience, that a bit of structure actually sets you free. It, it, it makes it work so much better. Great. All right, last question for you. This one wasn't actually on the list, but as we've been talking, I was thinking about what have I found most challenging being a leader at Be Ninjas, running my own firm. Yeah, yeah. And one of the challenges I have is um, conversations around salary and Try, trying to make so trying to keep the tiers within the firm consistent because I don't want one senior to be paid significantly more than another because they were a good negotiator. Um, the the overall perspective on salaries, but then also making sure that everyone's compensated at a market rate or above, but then they also need to believe that, which some people do, some people may not. So it can always be a bit of a, a um not always, sometimes it can be a challenging conversation. So what are your thoughts on, on how to handle those conversations and also how to figure out what somebody should should be paid? Yeah, yeah. Actually, this is something I have quite often been asked about and, and, and have actually been invited into some firms to to literally, you know, w- work through what they should pay people. Uh, so so it's, it's certainly a topic that uh, uh, I'm familiar with. And I think my, my view has always been um, from pretty pretty early on that, there are a few things that really determine how much someone gets paid. Firstly, there's the role itself, right? You know, um, a manager gets paid more than a junior accountant. Like, you know, different roles um, have different things. There is the market that then attaches to that role. 
Uh, and some roles may be a very different market. So, for example, if we are, you know, in a, in a multidisciplinary firm, we could have a very different market maybe for financial planners versus accountants or, you know, some of our support team members might be in a very different market. But I think the market, uh, of course, uh, is an important thing. The next thing is performance. So if I have two people who are at the same level and doing the same role, if one is clearly performing at a higher level than the other one, then there should be some difference there. That, that to me, makes complete sense. And then fourthly, sometimes there are kind of firm-specific circumstances which we kind of would prefer to live without, but we, you know, we probably just have to put up with. And that's something like we might have a particular person who is really, really fundamental to our business and has a pretty unique set of skills. And if they, you know, maybe left us, we would kind of go, hmm, that would be really, really, like really bad. <laughs> and in some cases, we might end up going, you know what, we're going to maybe pay them a bit more because of that. Could be the other way, of course. It could be actually we're not making any money in our accounting firm right now and so we can't actually afford to pay people more, you know. Now, that's a whole bigger conversation obviously about, you know, how did we end up in that situation and it's not particularly common. But there might be some unique situations. If, if you're in an unusual geographic area, for example, um, you know, for example, if you're, um, if you're an accounting firm in Cooma right now, you're competing against Snowy Hydro 2, right? And they're paying silly money. Or if you're in Canberra, the Australian Federal Public Service, you know, um, a lot of people go, oh, just go and get a cushy job in the public service, right? So there could be some unique things that a firm is dealing with that might drive that. But the role, the market performance really are, in my world, the three things that are going to drive those unless there's something unique. And so... You know, what most people, of course, are doing is they're, they're doing the research out in the market. They're looking at the Hayes Salary Survey or some other surveys that might be there. The Hayes Salary Survey seems to be one that a lot of the, lot of the team members look at because it's, it's an easy one to access and so on. Is it perfect? No, but it is something a lot of people will talk about. And there's a few others, but perhaps team members that might not have access to. Um, so you want to look at that. Uh, you know, you want to look at uh, uh, the position description of the person and, and of course, again, detailed topic for another day perhaps, but this whole idea of, you know, uh, how did the person go against the expectations that we set for them, you know. And so if they performed well, then, uh, you know, presumably we, we want to give them an increase. And, and what's the market doing? Well, actually sometimes what can happen is maybe someone's actually hit the limit for, for their role in the market. And Meryl, this is something I've seen on a few occasions. I've actually, actually in my reviews of firms, for example, or even just talking to, to owners of firms, they might end up with someone who's been in their firm for a long time and they give them that kind of the CPI every year, right? Often it's a bit more than the CPI, it's a bit more generous, right? But the person's role basically hasn't changed for like 10 years. So all of a sudden I've just seen a few cases where actually someone is not really, you know, maybe doing a manager role, you know, they might even just be basic bookkeeper, but they seem to be paying a very attractive manager's salary. And there's a real mismatch there. So sometimes it is going to be about, well, if a person wants to increase their salary, what more are they going to be doing? What more value are they going to be adding uh, to, to that? And often people will say to me that conversation when they say to a team member, look, I, I'd, I'd love to, to, to pay you more. Let's talk about how you can add more value. And, and that might allow me to pay you more. And again, most 
sensible accountants kind of get that notion of the connection between, oh, if I can add more value, then maybe I can be paid more. There'll be a few who don't get it and maybe maybe they need to, you know, as one of my mentors used to say, it doesn't make them a bad person. It maybe just makes them somewhere else. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, because they're not, they're not going to be a fit for you perhaps. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Bob, this has been amazing. We've covered a whole range of different topics related to management and leadership. Did you want to share did any parting words around that topic and then also where our listeners could find you if, if they were interested to reach out? Yeah, thanks, Meryl. Um, look, my, I think my message is it would probably be be twofold. A, as leaders, look, whether we're directors slash partners or managers, um, you know, people do look up to us. And so you've got to remember that you're always on stage, right, and how you behave uh, and the language that you use is is what they're going to do too. So, you know, if, if you're a nurturing, caring kind of and, you know, you're developing your people, they will they will follow your lead. If you stand up in the middle of office and yell at people uh, and call them names for underperformance, that's probably what they're going to do. So don't underestimate, you know, this idea that you really are a role model, you're kind of in the fishbowl and they're looking at you and they will follow your lead. And it, and it's a really, really powerful thing. Um, and I think fundamentally as a leader, you know, um, talking to your people and that communication piece is just such, such an important uh, thing. Sometimes it's like, yeah, well, let's just talk about it, right? Like, <laughs> um, so that's kind of my, probably my, my tip. Uh, in terms of where people can find me, uh, uh, my website is you know, planetconsulting.com.au or uh, rob at planetconsulting.com.au. And uh, like many people, I have the thing on the website where you can book a, you know, a, a confidential, you know, no obligation chat if someone wants to just explore a few I- ideas. Uh, but I love talking with, uh, you know, accounting firm owners and, and managers. Uh, that's my thing. Uh, so, you know, always uh, happy to, to chat to people. Amazing. Thanks so much, Rob. It's been great. A pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed chatting with Rob today. And something that stood out to me was hearing Rob describe how he would handle each situation and what he would say. What I took away from that was to ask lots of questions, be very specific with examples if you're wanting someone to change their behaviour or improve at something, but also give them the space to come up with and suggest potential solutions. And and I actually noticed some parallels to parenting, except that my toddler is is much less reasonable than the team members that we'd be dealing with here. I also reflected after the interview about that feeling that I had of unfairness when I was in my early 20s and one young accountant it seemed like he was getting special treatment to go off to his football training and the rest of us didn't have that option. In hindsight, that was probably something that he negotiated directly with management. And if some of us had asked for that, we we may have had that opportunity too. That didn't take away from the feeling of unfairness that I felt at the time. And so it made me reflect that as a manager and at, at Beanages, we're trying to encourage balancing the needs of each individual and their personal situation. But it made me reflect on how can we do a better job of being clear that, that everybody has that option to adjust their their hours or their, their work conditions to fit with the rest of their life. And 
repeating that message over and over uh, because if we don't, maybe there's some team members feeling the same way that I was that these special flexible perks are only available to some team members and it doesn't feel fair. Lastly, something I was chatting with Rob about before we started recording it, so didn't make it into the episode today, was that Rob has structured his consulting work so that he can spend extended periods of time overseas each year. So he works hard in sprints and then takes time off to go traveling with his partner. And I always love hearing examples of people who love their work, but they've also structured their work in a way that fits with their life. So I thought I'd mention that because that ties in with the theme of the lifestyle accountant as well. 